Welcome to this week's episode of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. We're in the second half of chapter six as we were talking about the war against Christians. It's a spiritual warfare. I am Pastor Michael Zarling, the author. I'm here with Pastor Peter Hagen, the editor. So, Peter, I want to read to you uh, something from Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Yes, from now on, there will be five divided in one household, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Jesus says he's going to bring division among households. How have you witnessed division like this in our culture? Oh boy, in our culture. Um, probably the most prominent one. Um, I, I've had to deal with this. I mean, we dealt with this a little bit back in when I was in Ottawa. Um, and I've seen that we've had to deal with it more over the last couple of years, um, both in Minnesota and now in Ohio and Michigan. Um, is the idea, first of all, that Christian, it basically starts by detaching Christian faith from the written word. That's where it starts. And so then um, you go there, the next step is my Christianity is simply how I feel about God and how I think God feels about me. And I have a personal relationship with him. And then one step past that is, therefore, whatever I feel is right and good is whatever God then says is right and good because you know, you Pastor Hagen and your church doesn't matter because my relationship is with Jesus. And it's this fallacy um, that that says, you know, scripture says one thing, scripture is very clear, and the world around us values something entirely different. Um, in, in everything that Christianity holds dear, the world has a counterpart. Um, we hold, for instance, the idea of, of baptism, baptism for babies, because they are born spiritually, spiritually dead. Um, the world holds the value of personal freedom, which includes, you know, exercising a so-called personal right to abortion um, so that you can exercise that personal freedom. And, and it, it comes to, you know, it's mostly in marriage and family things where it's most apparent, most obvious, um, related to marriage and family, whether it's children, abortion, whether it's marriage, um, or God's definition of marriage, or whether, you know, whether, you know one man, one woman um, who get married, who aren't living together outside of marriage, and it's not two men or two women. And so I see this, this division um, most often, and probably the, the biggest storm on the horizon is related to marriage and family, and the fact that holding to a strong biblical confession means that we will be colliding because the world holds something else as as near and dear to their hearts and holds it up as an example of love and uh, tolerance and respect. Yeah. Have you heard the term moral therapeutic deism? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I've used that in a, in a, in a sermon or two. Um, yeah. Moralistic it, therapeutic deism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what that is, is, you know, it is what you explained. It's where you are just feeling good about yourself your whole religion is yeah there's a god but he's going to approve whatever i'm thinking whatever i want whatever i'm doing it's all about your personal happiness that's the main doctrine that's the main tenet of the faith and 
it's something I think that has infected Christianity the last several years and decades. And it's even in our Lutheran churches and our Lutheran pews. Mm -hmm. And so it's what you're talking about there of uh, separating us because you have that truth that we hold dear as Christians getting into the Bible and it's going to separate us from those that are going to believe something else. And, and so like what that moralistic therapeutic deism basically proposes is you have a God who is moralistic. He says, do good things, be a good person. Um, you have a God who's going to pick you up when you're feeling down. He's therapeutic. Um, he's going to lift you up when you're feeling sad. Um, deism and just means let's not get too specific. You know, let's throw out the creeds. Let's throw out a biblical definition of Christianity. Um, because the, the world holds up their own idol of, of personal happiness. And then personal freedom is my is the sacrament to attain personal happiness. Um, so I need to have the freedom to do what I want so that I can be happy. And if anything gets in the way of my happiness or my freedom, then that is something that is, um, you know, they will say it, it, it's not the, G, not the Bible that I believe. It's not the God that I worship. And where you see this creep in, especially in music, is they'll switch out sin for fear. They'll say, um, you know, the problem isn't that I'm a slave to sin. The problem, they'll say, here's the switch, is that I'm a slave to fear because the fear is holding me back from exercising my freedom. The fear is holding me back from exercising my happiness and experiencing that happiness. And I think that is a very subtle one. Um, but it, it is something, you know, once you realize it and then you just peruse like the top, top 10, top 20 Christian songs, um, and you'll see they're substituting fear for sin. And um, because it, it serves the idol of personal autonomy, personal freedom, and personal happiness. And what we're talking about here in the church, it also then affects other parts of our lives. So it can be in our, in our politics. I, I listened to this a little while ago. Uh, Joe Rogan had on Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and he, uh, Dwayne Johnson had said, yeah, I've got all kinds of friends. Some are for Trump and others are for Biden. And Joe Rogan stopped him. And he said, do you really have friends that are for Bar Biden? <laughs> and uh, Dwayne Johnson started laughing. He said, oh, no, not really. I have friends that are for Democrats, but not really for Biden. But, you know, it's going to affect how we talk about politics, our, our faith. It's going to influence it and so forth. It's going to influence uh, us in the workplace or in the university. So if you know we as strong Christians are going to be against uh, everything having to do with the new sex things of homosexuality and bisexuality and transgenderism and so forth, uh, all of this <clears throat> DEI that's in our universities and businesses, uh, we're, you know, we're going to be called that we're going to have to give our pronouns in our bio. We're going to have to uh, wear like Kramer in Seinfeld, that we have to wear a ribbon. You know, he was running for an AIDS thing and he didn't want to wear the ribbon. And so they were chasing him down because you, ha you have to show that you're supporting something. And it's, it's the same thing as the wearing the yellow star showing you were a Jew back in Germany. And it's all of those things. And then we have to be strong enough as Christians, even in the workplace, to say, I'm not going to do that. 
And that's going to get to the next question, Peter. How do we make ourselves and our church ready for the spiritual war? Not a war that's coming, but a war that's already here. Well, that's a good question. Oh, boy. I thought so. That's why I asked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good writing, whoever wrote that uh, study yeah. guide. Thanks. Um, because I, I think it, it it's the exact same question as, um, you know, how do you prepare a church, um, you know, when we're currently in a time when there are a lot of vacancies and, you know, vacancies within our church body usually one year to 18 months long, um, is that it takes it takes some scriptural study as as like a daily personal practice um which i mean one step beyond that that we see the warfare is is not a cultural war it's not a red versus blue kind of a thing it's not um, trying to recapture the christianity or the christian nation that we once were because we never were um but it's recognizing that the battle is actually a spiritual battle that even if it is something that is visible, something that is political, or something that um, is affecting us through um, institutions that are funded by taxpayer money, um, no matter what it is, it's a spiritual battle. And we can't, we need to fight those things primarily with spiritual, spiritual tools, um, which is why, you know, we need to, we need to teach our children the hymns of the faith. We need to help our children memorize, you know, large portions of scripture, memorize the small catechism and, um, and on the child side. And then on the congregational side, um, we need to have actual discussions where even if it means, you know, soliciting anonymous questions or anonymous comments from, from the Bible study group, um, some way to, to get people's actual experiences and actual concerns. Um, about what they what they see or what they experience so that we can address them um, directly. Yeah, and that's, you're talking about Bible study and so forth, and you reminded me of uh, years ago, I had a young pastor ask me about some advice on working with his associate. The two of them were not getting along. And I said, you know, I don't really have any advice except to do what I did and be the very first pastor at a church because of the mission church. And so you don't, the people don't have anyone to compare you to, or you take a call to a church where that pastor that you're following was so bad, he got kicked out of the synod. And, but those are the two calls I've been at. And the second one, because the previous pastor here had messed up people, he'd only been here three and a half years, but he messed them up so badly. I took my people through an adult confirmation class every Sunday for a whole year. We just went through uh, line by line, just like we would do in catechism. Uh, but I think that's part of what we're, what we need to do. You know, I'm much deeper into the Benedict option than it was last week when we recorded. And that's really what the Benedict option is talking about too, is we need to, if we're going to be out in the world, we can't just figure an hour on Sunday morning. That's going to give us enough. Uh, enough willpower, enough strength, enough weapons. And the same thing for our children. When we're putting them into the lion's den in a public school setting, they don't have the tools. And they're understanding public schools, public universities, they're not neutral. And since God has been taken out of of these public schools because there's a lot of talk about banned books. Now, the only book that is really banned in public schools is the Bible. 
And so if God and his His will, his word, his ways are not part of uh, public schools and public universities, well, then what's left? Because we are not neutral people. It's going to be sinful people. It's going to be the devil's tools. And I'll share some things that's going on in public schools later on. So what we need to do then is to get these kids together and not just have fun with youth group events. That's what I tell my teens all the time. We do fun things by telling them, you're going to do more fun things than hanging out with your old pastor. You know, we're getting together so that uh, we have Bible study and sometimes we don't even do the Bible study, but just building a relationship with each other and building relationship with their pastor so that I get texts during the school day when they're bored at in high school at 1030 at night when I should be sleeping or whatever it is so that we build up a community. Uh, and, and a big thing too is so often now our people, it's just, you know, coming to church is one thing we do. We need to make church, Bible study, getting together in small groups, everything. Our Christianity needs to be a lifestyle. We need to be training for this spiritual war. Uh, one last thing on this, and I'll let you talk some more on this. My my daughters, my two middle daughters, they lovingly have talked me into running a half marathon. On purpose? Yeah, on purpose. And I'll be honest, you know, I do a lot of biking. I would rather... The most I've ever biked in a day is 173 miles. I would rather bike another 173 miles than run 13 miles. But, you know, I, I asked several weeks ago for training. Uh, how do I train for this thing? Thankfully, it's in September. So I got lots of time to train because I can't just get out there the, the day before or maybe the week before and just do it. I got to be training all the way through. And I bring that up. The same thing if we're in a spiritual warfare in our schools, in our universities, in our military, uh, in our culture, we can't just uh, do that once in a while when we go to church, uh, hear a 20-minute sermon, yours are maybe a little bit longer than mine, and then uh, do a few Bible studies and we're good. No, it's got to be a lifestyle that we are training hard just like we would for a marathon yeah, or a half and- marathon. Or half marathon, or or quarter marathon, <laughs> and uh, and and I guess together with that, um, you know, back on the you know religion in the public school thing, um, that the children, even minor children, are still entitled to their First Amendment rights, where it's an individual right, and if the school allows for uh, the school has to allow for um, using school time um, and give a religious group, a religious um, organization of students all the same um, rights and possibilities as as any other group within the within the uh, within the school um, and that any student can bring his or her own Bible and um, and proselytize according to their faith um, not that I would necessarily want to put my children into that and open them up to that kind of ridicule ridicule necessarily um, and I guess together with that that's where in our household, we've chosen um, what I like to affectionately call private school education at home, um, commonly referred to as homeschooling. And um, and you're you know wherever you might be, there might be a, a Lutheran school nearby, um, where also you know a, a 
at least the majority of the students are Lutheran school families. Um, that would be wonderful. And to, to consider that as an option, that you don't necessarily, it, it, I like to use the analogy of a greenhouse. Um, if you're going to be planting and growing crops, you don't, you know, take this tiny little tender seedling and then just go throw it out in the garden um, in, in the month of May or June and say, good luck, hopefully you'll get some fruit here in a few, you know, few months. Uh, no, you grow it in a greenhouse until it's strong enough to withstand the elements. Um, and no matter where your children go to school, that is still the parental responsibility. <laughs> like, even if it is a Lutheran school, you can't just say, well, you know, they're at the Lutheran school for nine, eight or nine hours, and then we have to do homework and all this other stuff. Um, but that we parents always have that responsibility. And, and it's caught as well as taught that they will catch your attitude toward church and Bible study, that they will end also the taught um, that yes, there are students, there are teachers and, and pastors who are and staff ministers who are called to teach your children, but it's still a primarily a parental responsibility. Um, and I guess together with that, you know, that's where you know, here's the, the teaser. We'll talk about this more another time. Um, I'm meeting with the, the printer today to write the to print up the advanced reader copy for the uh, the VDMA book, which is basically, you know, an old fashioned tool for memorizing scripture do you want, and, do you want to and explain doctrine. what VDMA stands for? Yeah, yeah. This is this is the, the difficult part about it. VDMA um, stands for uh verbum dei manet in aeternum. In other words, uh, the word of the Lord or verbum dei, the word of the Lord remains forever. VDMA, the word of the Lord remains forever. And what it is is um put the, the text of the small catechism, which is you know, just you know, what are the commandments, the creed, the um confession, uh, Lord's Prayer, Holy Baptism, Holy Communion, put that in there along with a selection of Bible passages and the images from the 1529 Catechism and um, and just say, here's, here's a schedule to how do you work through this with your child so that even a child as young as two can begin memorizing these things so that he or she has it in their memory banks before you know they start catechism class with the pastor. Because yes, it is part of the pastor's call to make sure that these children are catechized, but that catechetical practice um, begins by the call and response between the parent and the child so that the child learns it. Yeah, and so a couple of things on that. I would encourage everyone, if you have the opportunity to get your kids out of the public school to do so, you know, to homeschool. Peter and I were talking about this, you know, he, he he was playing a game with his kids this morning you know, for three and a half hours. And, you know, and you always, Oh, you get to play a game. And yet, like you said, there was reading, there was math. What else was there? There was cooperation, um, you know, taking turns and paying attention and planning out and strategy and also um, deference to the other person and, and the game. I mean, it wasn't monopoly or, you know, some of the games that you find at your typical shop co. Um, it was you know, something much more involved that that fit in this particular game. It was um, it was about a group of Vikings who are going raiding across the across the North Sea. Um, and, and that's kind of what we're studying right now is medieval time frame and, um, and the Vikings. Yeah. And if you don't think you can homeschool, look around and there's all kinds of cooperatives and there's a lot of great materials out there. I enjoyed it. We only homeschooled for a year or so. And one of my favorite lessons was we did archaeology. I buried some things in the backyard in the, in the sandbox and we just 
very carefully with brush, cleaned it off. And we did, it was a science lesson. But those are the things you can't do in a public school setting. You can't even do it in a Lutheran school setting like we have, because you got 18, 20 kids, they can't sit still. You know, they can when it's one-on-one or one-on-three or four. And then, like you said, parents, you have to be involved and not just trust that even your Lutheran elementary school is doing everything. You've got to be a part of it. That's one of the things I do in my catechism class is I have homework and I tell the kids I'm an easy grader because my whole purpose is I give you three or four questions that they have to discuss with their parents. That's the whole point, just to create that environment to talk about these things. Uh, in the new year, I'm going to be working with a couple of pastors at Shoreland Lutheran High School and uh, some other pastors that are outreach-minded like I am. And we're going to be creating a mentor program for our Lutheran kids that are active at Shoreland, active in their churches, making use of the means of grace so they can help those who are not active. Maybe they're members but don't go, or they are non-members, and then mention them. And and then going into the high and the colleges. This is something that I've worked with all of my daughters on. Uh, Bella's the latest one as she's looking at different colleges. You know, it's easy if she goes to Wisconsin Lutheran College in Milwaukee because it's Wells and they've got chapel all the time. But it doesn't look like she's going to go there. But then looking at one in Mequon and another university in Waukesha, and already I talked to the pastors about the campus ministry that's there. But also being con- being concerned about any kind of this woke mind virus that would be in a uh, in a different university. You know, she would be going to a small Presbyterian University, that doesn't mean that they're conservative. But, you know, those are things that we'll be looking at more closely and talking to because she wants to go into athletic training. And uh, so the medical field, unfortunately, has become very woke. And so those are questions we're going to have, as opposed to going to a conservative Lutheran University, which is the other one that uh, she's looking at. I got a question for you, Peter. When I use this phrase how does what do you think it means it takes a village to raise your children is that a good thing or a bad thing Uh, i i think the way it's normally portrayed is that well you need you need grandparents involved and you need a doctor for your children and you need a teacher and you need kindly neighbors who will feed your children cookies after they're playing outside um and my, it's a my lot of normal... deep sighing. There is, there is. It's like because we're recording. <laughs> well, so uh, let me. My, my, my response you... is no, it doesn't. It takes it takes a pair of parents. It takes yeah. parents to raise a child. And I've seen the village. I don't want them in the village. I don't want them meeting the village. I I don't want them out there. I I we need them to be raised by their parents. And if it takes the sacrifice of okay, maybe in some cases it can work where you can float the mortgage and you can pay the bills on one salary okay, wonderful. Then if you if you can do that, but you're choosing not to at least own it as your own personal choice and say that I am choosing to basically trade the time that I would have with my child in exchange for the, the paycheck that I'm getting. So that paycheck is the value that I place on my child's childhood and the raising that they need. 
And I understand there are cases where it does take two parents to make ends meet and to meet the bills. And sometimes there you know, are other choices or other disasters that happen earlier in life that we were digging ourselves out from. I understand that. And that's where, um, you know, maybe talk to your pastor and talk to your local church about, you know, how can we get our children into this school or how can we work together with um, some of the you know members in this church who can act as you know, good grandfatherly, grandmotherly kind of um, roles and figures in their lives to get a little bit more margin so that you have time with your child. Well, See, all that deep sighing was just a preparation for that. So, <laughs> Well, the reason I asked the question, it was something that Roger had brought up in uh, the Benedict Option, that because Hillary Clinton asked that years and years ago, and or said it takes a village to raise a child. You know, you understand probably where she was coming from, more the communist viewpoint, more like taking the child out of the parental home and then letting the government do it. But the it government, isn't, we're here to help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But we, but it's an African proverb, and there is truth to it. And that's what again the Benedict Option is talking about in the chapter that it mentions that quote of you having a community uh, a community of believers together you know you and your wife but also your church or like we were talking about before with a homeschool group use those other homeschool groups because you know if uh, shelly and i were doing homeschooling well she could do the I think, well, she's a lot smarter than I am with science and math and all those things. I could do the reading and so forth. But if it got to, you know, higher levels of chemistry and so forth, well, you know what? We might have a neighbor or someone else can do that. Like I was saying with the mentoring, getting other teens involved, uh, getting other people to come in and help. And that's part of the community I think we've lost. We've lost that village mindset. You know, a village... It would be, you know, kind of a, in a circle, and it's also there to protect. And in a spiritual warfare, when we're going to be constantly attacked by the devil and his minions, we need all the help that we can get. So we can't be off on our own. We have to be in the church. Uh, this Sunday, it's amazing how the Lord works, because I had talked to someone the he had visited us a couple of weeks ago with his sister, who is also a prospect. And this guy's wife had died suddenly. And so the sister asked if he could come to church with her. I said, well, I'll, yeah. And that'd be fantastic. Well, I, I reached out to him and it was a 45 minute conversation. He was still hurting, even though his wife had passed away like five months ago. And it was interesting in that, as he was talking, he brought up the Bible verse. He goes, I know God says that God will bind up the brokenhearted. So that was Sunday night. I texted him Monday morning when I was looking at the scripture lessons for this upcoming Sunday because I'm preaching. And I said, hey, Barry, uh, I, that verse that you quoted to me, that's the sermon text for this week. And I'm going to be preaching on it. And then I talked to a number of other ladies in our church because he's a widower these are widows and where it talks a number of times in Isaiah 61 about mourning and grieving. And it's talking, I know about uh, the physical aspect of the children of Israel returning to the homeland. And even though it's going to be talking about 
uh, it's the spiritual mourning over sin. I'm going to talk about the emotional mourning over sin and so forth. And just, just that fact of how God used that because I asked the ladies, and this will come up in the sermon on Sunday, you know, tell me what you're feeling. You know, their husbands have been gone. One was exactly a year yesterday when I talked to her. The other's a little more recent, a little, a few years past, but they said, I asked them what helped. And they said, the other ladies at church, God's word. It is being with the fellow believers. And I just tell that long story because that's what we need. That's the village aspect. So I know where you're going with the parents and so forth, yeah. but you know, there is, there is truth with that as well. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and what I don't, what, what you kind of see when politicians use that phrase um, or that sentence, it takes a village to raise a child is that they have a vested interest in, um, in the political propositions and the governmental programs that they are proposing in and of themselves. Those those programs might be a good thing for those who are especially in need. That's one of the functions of good government is to, you know, catch those who are um, in, in real need. Um, but what the government is really trying to do is, again, imitate what the Christian church already has. And that the Christian church has this fellowship where we support each other out of love, um, out of common care and concern, not out of compulsion. The government imitates that by saying we want to build the same sort of structure and community, except they only exercise with the tool of law and obligation and taxation. Um, and so we as citizens of both, yes, we understand the role of the government um, in providing for those in need and our obligation to you know, taxes and that sort of thing. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't you know totally dismiss that we need to be actively thinking about how do we build you know stronger connections among the people within our church. Yeah, and to think of the public school system, it's kind of like an assembly line for a vehicle, and it may it might be effective for building a vehicle, but if you're building something that is very specific and very high tuned you don't do that in mass you know that's in a workshop that's one-on-one -on -one. or if a vehicle you're in a garage uh, you're only making a limited amount and that's the way we should be talking about our children not in that mass uh, factory setting but that's kind of the way it has become for our public schools another yeah, question our, uh... here What's that? I, I could talk about education all day, but the, yeah. the long and short of it is that our current education system was um, adopted from the Prussian education system, um, and it was adopted by John Dewey and another atheist that I don't, don't remember his name right offhand. Um, and with with the ex two express purposes to churn out somebody who can function within the industrial age, and also the secondary purpose of getting the children into the system sooner and out of the influence of the parents sooner. Yeah. And then to think of it too, in those terms, if they're in a public school setting where it's that factory setting, they're not really being taught to think independently like you would in a homeschool setting. You're being taught to think the way you're being taught to think. You're just regurgitating facts as opposed to just playing a simple game like you were talking about. You know that they have to figure these things out on their own. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to quote from Second Corinthians twelve verses nine and ten. Paul writes, and he said to me, he's talking about he being Jesus. 
my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will be glad to boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may shelter me. Then Paul writes, that is why I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So, Peter, is Paul crazy when he writes these words? And if he's not crazy, then how is it possible to delight in hardships, persecutions, and suffering? Excellent question. Um, here at the end of 2 Corinthians, um, I think the easiest explanation is you know, right there in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Or if you keep reading in 2 Corinthians, he's going to be bringing out an, an example from his own life. Um, that he had that thorn in the flesh, um, some sort of physical malady that had some sort of spiritual component to it that hindered his ministry from his perspective. And, um, and what he's saying, you know, I delight in weakness and insult, and when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Uh, what he's saying is that he, he finds it joyful when he doesn't rely on his own rhetorical ability, on his own human reason and his human ability, but he has to uh, rely on the, the power of Jesus in the word of God, um, that Jesus himself is the one who accomplishes any good through us. And, and that, you know, paradoxically, he accomplishes more good when we, we ourselves by our own power, when we do less. Yeah. And so I was thinking too, on this, that we have to be willing to give up stuff. Like you were talking about, if we're going to, Maybe, it, maybe if it is homeschooling, maybe we give up one of the uh, the salaries. We buy a smaller home. We're not going on vacations and things like that that we're sacrificing. And then our children see us sacrifice. Uh, they see us sacrifice. But, hey, we're not going to uh, the football game, to the soccer tournament, the basketball game, or practice on midweek Advent or midweek Lent, whatever it is, when the our children see us giving up things, then they're willing to give up things. But if they've never seen us suffer for our faith, they're not going to be willing to suffer. Uh, one thing, and I thought of, I was reading some Not the Bee articles, and one of them came to mind. Uh, let's see if I can find this one. So do you know who Kat Von D is, Peter? Nope. Nope. That's okay. I didn't either. So she was a world famous tattoo artist and she was into witchcraft and new age stuff and so forth. But there's a several articles on not the bee of how she had uh, given up all of that. She threw all of her new age occult materials away and then she was baptized. And uh, she was on a podcast with Allie Beth Stuckey recently and talked about her past struggles with addiction, why she left the new age. I just want to read one thing she, she said, too. She says, I'm on fire for Jesus. I don't see this dimming out. The more I learn, the more I get excited for things. And the more at ease I am about what's happening in this world. Uh, and I bring that up because I'm going to guess she's given up a lot. You know, maybe giving up her friends and so forth. She talks about it in another article that her husband is not a Christian. And she says, just pray for him. You know, keep on encouraging him. 
but it sounds like she had like a road to Damascus moment with like uh, Saul did to become the apostle Paul. And, and I bring that example up because she's giving up things. I don't know if she's going to be persecuted and so forth, but we will. Uh, you want to talk about the article you shared with me about the, no, you can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, I came across the, the headline, um, cause I still read the Drudge Report. I, I'm probably one of like 10 people who have been on this website that's been around since for 25 years or 30 years almost. Um, anyway, the Drudge Report is one of those, the original news website that just lists headlines. And, um, and for a long time, they were basically politically center. Um, I don't know if that's still the case or not, but I'm scrolling through the Drudge Report, getting my headlines for the day. And there was one um, that basically said, that a student failed a quiz for saying that men cannot get pregnant. And so I clicked the link, of course, because I'm like, well, that sounds that sounds interesting. And um, and it was an opinion piece from uh, conservative talk radio, um, AM 770, from somewhere west of the uh, Mississippi River, KTTH. So I don't I don't know this guy. Um, I don't know the obviously when you read through it, you start to see the opinion, um, but it was it took place in Seattle at Chief Sealth International High School in Seattle. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. They were in an ethnic studies world history class and given a quiz entitled Understanding Gender versus Sex. Okay. Um, and so just the primer on that, the way that those terms are usually used is sex is the, the biology that you that you have, that you were born with. Gender is how you feel you are interior in inside. And, um, and that can change, you know, based on based on the day, based on the time, based on whether you have heartburn from last night's chili, doesn't matter. Um, and, and, and I don't mean that to be dismissive, because there are people who really struggle with this. But it isn't helpful, um, because it separates because what they will then assert is that um, who you feel like inside is your true self, and that your outside needs to conform to it, or that your outside is therefore incorrect. And so this was, you know, a lot of it was on personal pronoun use, such as, you know, when somebody uses the pronouns they or them, what does that mean about their interior feeling of their gender identity? Or true or false, transgender people are gay. Um, and, and all it is, is it's separating out the physical reality from the spiritual and emotional mental reality, as if those two could be separated. Um, and this student um, marked, you know, there's a first question, all men have penises. Um, the student labeled that true because that is a biological fact. And then there was another one, only women can get pregnant. Again, the student marked the statement true because only women can get pregnant. And, and the, the question was marked wrong for that. And um, the interesting thing is that the, you know, the parents said they, you know, the mom said that she was proud of her child. And, um, for standing up for you know bio, biological facts, um, but the parent didn't pull the child out, and you know we why did it have to take till tenth grade to be realizing? Wait a second, they are teaching one thing in biology class and then making up something entirely different in this other class, and it crosses the line. Um, so it, it's straight out of you know 1984 George Orwell's novel, um, which if you haven't read that lately, that'll be today's book recommendation. Along with the Benedict option. Yeah, and that, that goes along too. Uh, you can follow this up, Peter, is what do you tell your college students when they're facing these kinds of things? Uh, I know in the past, 
maybe it still goes on in the present. People, parents, pastors might tell students, yeah, just keep your head down, get your grades, get in, get out. I tell my students, you be bold. You can't uh, acquiesce to the, to the lies of Satan and just keep your mouth shut because other students believe the same way you do. You standing up gives them the opportunity and the courage to stand up. And you might start believing this filth. Uh, you, mm -hmm. Yeah, you might get a poor grade. So what? It doesn't matter. Uh, I don't know. What do, you, what do you tell your students? Yeah, and, and I guess there's a couple of things that go along with that. I mean, that, that first of all, um, there are a lot of cases where the, the time in college is not worth the cost. Yep. Um, and how, however you calculate that cost, um, whether it is the, time, the money you pay toward the degree versus the salary you can expect um, to get as a result of having that degree, whatever it is, the time isn't always worth the cost. So count the cost ahead of time. Um, and then secondly, um, with all these things, you can make a first you know we have to have some some knowledge of the you know aristotelian logic the the classical practice of logic that a plus b equals c um that we that you can make a logical rational human argument against you know some of these questions like women can get pregnant um we can talk about that from a human human perspective but the even greater one you know after you have made the rational human reason argument then followed up with, and this is my sincerely held belief as a Christian. Um, and, and that, you know, expressing your sincerely held belief, yes, that is, that is your right, of course. Um, but also it, it might, it might mean, okay, you, you get a poor grade on that. You don't exactly pass the class. Um, but to be able to expose the, the logical inconsistency and let the logic, you know, let the, the issue just consume itself because it is logically inconsistent. Um, it, it's right up there with, um, you know, like we talked about a week or two ago about this this transgender man, this person who was born male now um, presents and dresses as female, and then he goes and crushes a women's strongman competition, powerlifting competition, um, and then another guy who's an actual like world champion powerlifter just walked in and and said, "Well, I'm a woman today," and then he. He did the same thing um, to demonstrate the, the logical fallacy. You know, it's like the emperor has no clothes. Let's let's be honest here. We can all see the reality here and and compelling somebody else to go. Compel, this was where Jordan Peterson started probably 10 or 15 years ago um, at the University of Toronto, where his his point was, you cannot compel me to use specific pronouns that do not agree with your biology so if i if you said your pronouns were she and her um that would be compelled speech and that nobody else has the right to compel speech because that speech will um influence and interact with my beliefs and at some level we have to understand that if we're going to say something that has to interact with what we actually believe that words will drive that belief unless our beliefs first drive those words. And that goes to, to this too. Uh, with our beliefs, we have to carry our beliefs into the culture, even you know in politics. Uh, so again, reading some articles that just popped up the last few days. So there's now a, a satanic club. I forget what the name, what, what school it's. Oh, it's in, it's in Tennessee. 
So they've got a conservative uh, governor, conservative legislature. It's a conservative state, and yet they've got a Satanist club in their school. Uh, there's a satanic temple statue in Iowa, and there, uh, the governor. Uh, I think is I forget if it was the governor or if it was the uh, some other politician. Oh, who is a pastor also just acquiescing back and forth. Well, we got the freedom, you know, the freedom of speech and this and that. He was just waffling on his faith. And we were saying, well, this is where I feel as a Christian or as a pastor, but I have this as this feeling as a politician. No, it should be one and the same. Your faith should drive you. And then there's also uh, in Oklahoma, uh, someone just got elected to to their Senate, I believe, uh, Pastor Dusty Devers. And he come, he's strong. Check him out. Uh, he is all for the abolition of abortion. You know, get rid of it. And that's where we have to be with this, is saying, you know, bring up the things with the satanic statue uh, for Christmas or the satanic club in the school. The Satan's not hiding himself anymore. He's coming right out and he's coming right at us, throwing it in our face. We got to go right at him. And so the last question, Peter, is God's weapons of word and sacraments appear weak and lowly. Share a story of how God's word and sacraments have uh, have saved a soul from Satan and then put them on the road to now fighting against Satan. You could think of, um, obviously, the Apostle Paul. Um, you could think of, you know, some of the. Well, I'm thinking. Yeah, I think of ahead. someone you know that you've pastored. So you think about it. I'll, I've got a couple examples. So one would have been that Kat Von D. Another mm -hmm. is this Sunday, uh, that Justin and Stacy are being confirmed. I we baptized their three kids last month. They finished the the classes with me, and I told their story several weeks ago, uh, where they've traveled from. Well, she traveled from being Wells to non-denominational churches, and the two of them got involved in paganism, Satanism, the Mormon Church, and now, Lord willing, this Sunday to be confirmed. And I'm going to be working with her on possibly becoming a Wells teacher someday. So that's that's a big road. That's awesome. Uh, that's awesome. Yes. Or I think of, and everyone can check this out. Uh, I shared this on all kinds of different Wells Facebook sites and on my personal page of, uh, it's an article called Wet Head and Wet Cheeks. It was about baptisms that we had at last month's Jesus Cares Worship at the Cross, which is a worship service for simple, for uh people with autism or special needs of any kind. And it was three, a mom that mom and her two adult children from New Life Lutheran Church in Kenosha. And then Dana, uh, I baptized her and God had just moved her. She had said that what she wanted for Christmas was to be baptized and God blessed her. And, and now uh, Dana is pushing for all four of them to start uh, a simplified catechism class with us and Lord willing more will come from that. And that's just some, those are just some examples of word and sacrament, something very simple, a little bit of water on the head. And with Dana, it was a very little, 
you know, thankfully there are people in our church that understand autism and so forth way better than I do. And they practiced baptism with her and she didn't like the water on the head. And so it was, I just made the sign of the cross with a wet finger and mm -hmm. a little bit of water, but it was God's word that, that changed her. And that's what we need. And to keep using that word and sacraments. All right. You got a story. Yeah, I, I'm just, um, you know, thinking through the confirmations, mostly adult confirmations we've had over the last two years. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, this is has been a historically very well churched area. And um, a lot of those cases are people who have, you know, come from a heterodox church of some sort, um, or who had, who had familiarity with the church growing up, and then they were um, came back to the church later in life, and then we instructed them. Um, you know, we've got a, a couple of young men who are serving on our council now who um, you know, have gone through the confirmation process during the time that I've been here, um, as well as, you know, a couple of um, older people who were finding, finding Christianity again after, after being de-churched for about 20 years and, um, and just saying, you know, pastor, how can we help out? Um, we just got a new car. Can we pick somebody up for church? Um, you know, simple things like that. And, um, or, or some of these other young people that, that are now, um, you know, like one member in the family was was confirmed now, and um, and now they're raising their children in this Lutheran faith and saying, you know, we want to we want to raise our children as a united household um, that is united in in biblical truth, um, and it it doesn't always look um, doesn't always show up as as flashy as the Wells connection sometimes makes it look. <laughs> But it is that uh, it is that consistent, um, and you know, one by one, um, one by one, just saying, "Well, this person needs Jesus," and that's that's the one that we have to offer. Yeah, and it is that not flashy. It it is it's like uh, my two middle daughters, Miriam and Lydia. So Miriam created a a Snapchat for us called Half Marathoners and to keep each other going. So putting in there you know, what we're doing and to push each other. That's what we need with this warfare that we have against Satan. We have to be uh, being fed with the sacraments and strengthened with God's word. Uh, we need to be taking that daily bath of uh, baptismal waters. That's what's going to prepare us. And then we get other people around us and then we can go off and we can go in and fight. Uh, but simple weapons, word and sacrament. So our encouragement to you is go to church this weekend, go to Bible study, talk about the sermon and the, the children's devotion. If you have one Sunday school, the hymns, talk about that on the way home and then have home devotions. They seem simple, but just uh, whether it's watching things like the chosen, listening to Handel's Messiah, any of these kinds of things, get into God's word visually, audibly, uh, physically in the church. And then that's what, that's what strengthens you. And then go and fight. That's what God's calling you to do. Not to always be on the defensive, but to go on the offensive. All right, we'll end it there. And then next week, we'll pick it up with a shorter chapter on Christian quietism. It's a shorter chapter, but it's an important one because, unfortunately, I think we've often been affected and infected by this Christian quietism.